My favorite uh, TV show once had an episode where my favorite character in it just had twins. The twins are just hours old. And in the previous episodes leading up to it, he had shared with a friend that he was afraid that he didn't have the natural capacity to love his children as other parents seem to just have. He doesn't feel that it was in him. So they laid these two twins on the bed in front of him and he looks at him and he says, I didn't know babies came with hats. You guys crack me up. You don't have jobs. You don't have a dollar in your pocket, but you got yourselves a hat. A comedian I love was doing a routine about his three children and at the time he was talking about the middle boy who had just learned to walk. And he said, he's a walker, but he can't carry anything, so he's useless. I put a backpack on him and he just falls down. You look like a turtle, I tell him. It's empty. Children have always been seen to be seen and not what? And not heard. And I don't think that it's ever been different. I think that every culture, every, uh, I guess, generation comes up with a way to live that out. And nothing probably was more true or more so in Jesus' day all the way back in the first century. Jesus has mothers bringing children to him and his disciples pull a hamstring trying to keep them away because they don't wanna be students of a rabbi who messes with children. What serious rabbi is going to spend time, his precious time, his precious religious time on kids or women for that matter? The kingdom, this kingdom, really has not much use for kids. You guys were talking in Sabbath school about the kingdom. And how close is the kingdom? Where is the kingdom? What is the kingdom? The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, it's not close. It's where? It's at hand. In the gospel of Mark, Mark doesn't even mess with genealogies as Matthew and Luke do. Uh, he sent Mark, he sends right into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And when Jesus comes back out of that temptation in the wilderness, he tells everybody who's looking at him, hey, repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He just went and had it out with the proclaimed kingdom of this, uh, king of this kingdom. He just had it out with him and defeated him. So he comes in and proclaims the kingdom of heaven is here. It's not a what, it's a who. Kingdom's here. We're not waiting for it. It's here, it's within you, he later tells his disciples in John. As they get a little further along and he can reveal that to him, he says the kingdom of God is, is, is not uh, seen by signs, it's nothing external, there's nothing uh, uh, that at what, at which is out there, there's only you. The kingdom of God is within you because he promised that his spirit would be within us. The only sign we should be looking for are the fruits of the Holy Spirit in those who claim to be his believers. And every time you see one of those fruits, love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, gentleness, self-control, you can be assured the kingdom of heaven is here. And it's been here 
for 2,000 years, walking and talking. But here we live in the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of heaven has to be incubated or, or lived in this crucible. It has to be lived out. If, if, if you think about it, what use would it be otherwise? We're here to be able to comfort the kingdom of the world with the kingdom of heaven. We wanna show people what it can be like. Even in this, even in the midst of this, we want people to know what it's like to walk and talk with Jesus. So when it comes to the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, guess who the number one citizens are? Guess who the greatest citizens are? The greatest citizens of the kingdom of heaven are the ones that are the least here in the kingdom of the world, which means that kids are at the top of the list. We might be okay with Isaiah prophesying that one day we will be led by children. How many are okay with that? How many want our kids to lead us right now? Oh, I do. Oh, I, I, <laughs> we've, we've had about, you know, anywhere between seven and 10,000 years adults to put the world in the condition that it is. Maybe we should let our kids lead us for a while. But the kingdom of heaven, when we finally march into it completely fulfilled, we're gonna be led by the children. We might be say or claim that we're okay with that, but I remember a church member coming to me adamantly opposed with this picture that I had just painted when I said that David maybe might not have even been 12 years old when he killed Goliath. And they were adamant, they were hacked at such a picture. When we, when we studied First uh, and Second Samuel, you remember um, uh, I, I brought that up and, and what it really, and, and the paintings and everything and the pictures and everything that it looks like, every time I see a picture of David and Goliath, David gets bigger and older and stronger when actually he may not have even been 12 years old. By the way, Mary probably was only 12. In Jewish law, you become a man at age 13. You become a woman at age 12. Jeremiah may have been the same. I love Jeremiah's reaction. God says, don't tell me you're too young. And the very first thing that Jeremiah tells him is, you know what, Lord, I'm just too young. But we learn that the kingdom of heaven, they're the greatest. They're the most elite of citizens. Children are. They're also the groups of citizens that the kingdom simply just belongs to. Jesus says uh, about the kingdom, he says, little children were being brought to him in order that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is such as these, to, to such as these, the kingdom of heaven, what? Just belongs. Just belongs whether they have a hat or not, whether they can carry anything or not. They just belong. And in that kingdom, they are considered the greatest. The king of kings, the Lord of lords of that kingdom says, disciples came to Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he calls what? A little child. And he puts him on his knee right in front of them. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
It's not like they're gonna be adults there and they'll just be least citizens in the kingdom of heaven. We won't even be there unless we become like children. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you, in the kingdom of the world, does a child have to decide whether or not they will be humble? No. They're the most vulnerable in this world. They are by very nature. They don't have to decide to become humble or proud. Children have no choice. They're vulnerable, completely vulnerable. They have to be protected and nurtured by who? By us. But Jesus said in the kingdom of heaven, flip that around. Dependence. What he's saying is that in the kingdom of heaven, there won't be anybody who doesn't think that they need Jesus to be there. When Jesus walked the earth, the only believers, those who claimed to be believers, were the ones who didn't feel that they need him. They were the only ones that didn't recognize him as the Messiah. Everyone else who decided that they need him, the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they decided that they need him. They immediately recognize him as the Messiah. They never argue with him that he's the Messiah. It's the people that didn't think that they need him. It's the spiritually sufficient. It was the self-righteous people who looked at him and called him the devil. So children, why children? It's their dependence. Complete dependency on someone else for their welfare and quality of life with no pretense of being anyone or anything else. They know who they are and they just are. They're kids and they know it, right? And they're just kids. Now be careful. They're not there because they're innocent. Anybody thinks that a child is innocent because they're a child probably hasn't been a parent very long. You with me? Not even babies. We did this in prayer meeting. Is a baby a sinner? A human baby, brand new, born, first breath. Is he or she a sinner? You bet he is. He may not be a transgressor, right? He may not be old enough to break the law to do it consciously, but he still has his parent's selfish nature, does he not? And again, if you don't think so, then you haven't been a parent very long. Does a baby care how much sleep you get, mom? Nope. Does a baby care how much money you may have, dad, mom? Nope. Baby only knows that it wants it and it wants it when? Now. And by the way, considering the smell, I don't blame them for wanting it now. But a baby should be fine, and they are fine, with whatever worth their mommy and their daddy put upon them, with whatever their guardians say about them and how they treat them. That's how vulnerable a child is. Their worth comes from those of us who are supposed to teach them their worth. When Nellie was pregnant, I couldn't wait. Babies are my favorite. Ask anybody who's ever brought a baby into this church or brought them to potluck. They're mine until you go home. And I'll keep them even if they're crying. I'll change them if you want to. I don't care, I'm carrying the baby. This one though, I don't have to give back. I take him home with me. 
I couldn't wait. Others may not have thought so. Other, may, may, other people may not have thought that he was special, that he was beautiful. All they saw when they looked at him was probably what everyone else sees when they look at a baby, at just a baby, snot-nosed diaper filler, right? But they're not yours. You don't say that about them to mom and dad's face, do you? Why? Why are they the most beautiful? Because they're ours. They're mine. They belong to me. They're more than their smells. They're more than their inconveniences. They're more than their selfishness. They're more than their talents or their skills or whatever they become. They're just our kids. They're also greater than the sum of their mistakes, their greatest sins. We don't always treat our children that way, do we? But our father treats us that way. We're so much more to him than what we think we are. Why? Because we're simply his. In a sense, in and of themselves, children wield no power, at least not power that matters in the kingdom of this world. And I guess that's what I wanted, why I wanted to talk about this again. This isn't uh, quite new. When we studied the kingdom of heaven in the book of Matthew about, about three years ago, remember I told you 26 times Matthew refers to the kingdom of heaven. We looked at almost every one of them. Who belongs, who doesn't, what it is, what it isn't, where it is, who it is. We looked at all of that. And when it came to the time of talking about who's the greatest, we had to talk about children. And I think that's why I wanted to talk about this again, because number one, we just finished chapter three of Galatians, which says some very, very special things about being the child of a father, a father Abraham, to be uh, an heir, if you will, H-E-I-R, to inherit, simply based on a promise. I wanted, to do, I wanted to talk about that. And also, while we've been away, it's just this world seems to have uh, consolidated uh, continually its power, and it's, and it's still being painted with, with a cross. I still see the church treating people in the kingdom of the world as if they belong to the kingdom of the world. So that's why I called this a reminder. I just want to remind us who we are. I want to remind you who I, I, I was reminded of who I am. I want to remind you of who, who, who you are. We're children of the living God. So how do we act? We have no, we're supposed to have no power, or at least the power that matters in the kingdom of the world, like children. Gregory Boyd, in his book, The Myth of a Christian Nation, says, whenever a person or group exercises power over others or tries to, there is a version, there is a version of the kingdom of the world. He says that the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the, of the world is whether or not you exercise power over or power under. If we exercise power over, that's what the kingdom of the world does and does it very well. Kingdom of the world has a way of finding the most vulnerable and exercising their will over it. Whether that will be religious or economic or domestic or civic or military, the world knows how to do it. But power under, 
Somebody mentioned in Sabbath school today the pearl of great price. Where was the beauty and the power? It was under, it was in the ground. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who takes yeast and puts it in a lump of dough. Just a little yeast and what happens? Does it happen loud? Does it announce itself? No, it's very quiet. Pearl of great price just sat in the field. Didn't announce itself. It was just there waiting to be discovered. The kingdom of heaven is like that. I'm struck by how quiet the kingdom is. I'm struck by how its citizens don't seem to boast. And we should be struck more by its citizens not exercising their will forcefully upon anybody else. But he says, exercising power over, that's a version of the kingdom of the world. While it comes in many forms, the kingdom of the world is in essence a power over kingdom. We fallen humans have passionate convictions that control us and lead us into conflict with others who have equally passionate convictions. We believe in our nation over and against their nation, our religion over and against their religion, our culture over and against their culture, our political ideology over and against their political ideology, and so on and so on. And insofar as we are influenced by the kingdom of the world, we express these passions by attempting to exercise power over as others do in their nation, their culture, their religion, or political ideology when it conflicts or threatens our own. Violence then becomes the inevitable result. Little children were being brought to him in order that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them. See, in the typical kingdom of the world fashion, the disciples assumed Jesus was too important to concern himself with children. Jesus showed how wrong-headed they were, and by allowing the children to come to him, he demonstrated the kind of kingdom he came to bring. And I imagine Jesus roaring with laughter as the kids climbed all over him. To Jesus' way of thinking, there's no place in the kingdom for evaluating how important someone is on the basis of their power, possessions, money, or social respect. Children have none of these. But for that reason, they have access to the creator of the universe in his incarnate form. You want access to Jesus? After he came to walk and talk, you have to become like what? have to become like a little child. Children have none of this power. It makes them victims. Often poverty and, and oppression exploit them. Evil takes advantage of this powerlessness. In the kingdom of the world, children are the least because of, they don't contribute. They don't have any of the status that the kingdom of the world looks for and takes seriously. If children have advocates in the kingdom of the world, it's up to who? It's up to us. Sometimes though this powerlessness, if you wanna see what it looks like, sometimes this powerlessness manifested in this world is manifested in real power. In other words, it's made known in real power. I know I'm reading a lot to you today, but, but uh, these, these two books 
these two uh, men talking about this is just fascinating. Philip Yancey in his book, Soul Survivor, tells us about Dr. Robert Coles. He was a professor at Harvard Medical School. When he first got to Harvard, he studied literature. He was soon taken by a professor there who was a poet and a doctor. He thought that sounded good. He muddled through medical training, but he was troubled with it. He spent far too much time talking to patients, too little time on lab work. He couldn't dissect, couldn't stick needles into anyone, especially children, and he found himself staring blankly at trees and stars. That's my kind of doctor. You know, standing there with a needle in your arm and they're staring at a tree or stars. One of his teachers suggested seeing a psychiatrist, hoping that psychoanalysis would help him reconsider his future in medicine, and it did. He became a psychiatrist. He began to distrust, though, quickly, the traditional psychiatric method of an expert sitting at a desk listening to a patient and then choosing an appropriate treatment. He needed to enter into his patients' lives to understand their extended families and homes and cultures and economic status. He needed to cross the bridge between observer and observed, between doctor and patient. That's not bad for the early 70s and the late 60s, is it? He learned to pay attention, actively, aggressively. Each life has its own mystery, its own tale to be told. He determined to discover that tale and attempt to translate it to others. He widely departed from tradition. Freud said, you begin to ask, when you begin to ask about the meaning of life, you're already sick. Coles could hardly ask about anything else. He practiced an unusual form of field research, following children from place to place, sitting on floors of their homes, asking a few questions, winning their trust. He rode their buses to school with them, sitting on an undersized, uncushioned bench seat, gripping the rusty bars of the seat in front of him. He became known as the crayon man because he'd pull out paper and crayons and ask children to draw pictures. The pictures would often reveal more than their words. And then he set out to, to research what became his, his keystone in all of his research and, and, and what he did, and that was the effect of great trauma on children. He researched in the South, in Appalachia, in Soweto, South Africa, in Northern Ireland, in Boston at the time of the bushing issue, the slums of Rio, dissident homes in Poland. The one story that, that rings with us is that uh, he was from the South, he was from New Orleans, so he went back to the South to the Gentilly district and he encountered a six-year-old girl named Ruby Bridges. Ruby was the first black child to attend the France school in the Gentilly district of New Orleans. All other students at the school had boycotted in protest. Each day, Ruby was escorted by federal marshals, city and state police had refused to protect her. She walked through the midst of a mob of white people who were screaming obscenities, yelling threats, waving their fists at her. And remember, she was going to an empty school because every other kid stayed home in protest. There's a picture, a painting of it by, uh, shoot, it just, Norman Rockwell, that's right. Norman Rockwell, Saturday Evening Post. And the picture is, is fascinating. 
the federal marshal is only seen from the waist down. And all you can see is his, his armband on him. And Ruby is pictured all the way with a tomato against the wall and a slur written. It's a moving, fascinating picture. Inquiring, Coles learned that she ran this gauntlet every day, attending a vacant school to sit alone all day in her classroom. As Coles watched the brave young girl, it occurred to him that she would make an ideal subject for studying the effects of stress and trauma on young children. And an astonishing thing happened over the next few months. Dr. Robert Coles had come as an expert, a pediatrician, and psychiatrist with the full prestige of Harvard, Columbia, and the University of Chicago behind him. He had come to treat an uneducated, disadvantaged black child in the slums of New Orleans. And as time went on, he felt a, role of rever a reversal of roles taking place. He was the student, not Ruby and she was teaching him an advanced course in ethics. Coles wondered, what if a gang of angry, club-wielding men and women lined up in front of the Harvard Club to block my entrance? What would I do? Well, I'd call the police, of course. But in New Orleans, federal marshals were brought in because the police were not on Ruby's side. He'd call his lawyer and get a court order. Ruby's family knew no lawyers, and if they did, they certainly couldn't afford them anyhow. At the least, he'd rise above the mob by explaining away their behavior in the language of psychopathology and perhaps write a condescending article about them. Ruby knew no such words. She was just learning to read and write. So what did Ruby Bridges do in these daunting circumstances? Guess what she did? She prayed. She prayed for herself that she would be strong and unafraid, but also prayed for her enemies that God would forgive them. Jesus prayed on that cross, she told Coles, as if that settled the matter. Jesus prayed on the cross. That settles it for her. Forgive them. They know not what they are doing. Six years old. Three other six-year-old black girls were attending another school against similar opposition. Coles began meeting with them, too, twice a week. He got to know Tessie, especially, and her grandmother, who would greet the federal marshals at eight each morning with the expression, Lord Almighty, another gift. And then hand over little Tessie, who carried her lunch pail to school between two men in dark suits with guns on their belts. After two months of facing the abusive crowds, Tessie suggested that maybe she should stay home. Her grandmother delivered a lecture. You see, my child, you have to help the good Lord with this world. He puts us here. He calls us to help him out. You belong in that McDonough school. And there will be a day when everyone knows that even those poor folks, Lord, I pray for them, those poor, poor folks who are out there shouting their heads off at you, you're one of the Lord's people. He's put his hand on you. He's given a call to you, a call to service in his name. On Cole's academic chart of moral development, magnanimous love for enemies appeared right at the top. It's at the top of the pyramid. A level attained by people like Jesus and Gandhi and a few precious saints. 
He had not expected to find such a philosophy philosophy being lived out daily by three six-year-old literal girls and their culturally deprived families. He then quotes, Yancey then quotes a, a quote by Walker Percy uh, in one of his characters in the book, his book, The Second Coming, said this. He said, he gets all A's, but he flunks ordinary living. Coles began to wonder if such a description applied to him. So we see as adults, we're to live in the kingdom as children. The biggest danger we face, even as born again children of the lamb, was this though. What's the biggest danger we face trying to live in the kingdom as children? He says this, he says, whoever welcomes such a child, remember he has this child on his lap. He says, uh, and he's already told him, this, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You won't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you become like this child, he says. So he says, whoever welcomes such a child in my name welcomes me. See, they, they had already not only didn't welcome the women and the children, they tried to keep them away from him. He's speaking directly to them. What's he telling them to do? You guys gotta change your mind about what's important here. You, gotta, you guys gotta change your mind about what's going on. I'm happy to have you as my disciples, as my students, he's telling them. But you're not here in order to be better than other students. You're not here to be more prestigious in another rabbinic school. You're here to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And you've been actively trying to keep the greatest citizens in that kingdom away from me. Which he already has established, he's the kingdom. But if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it'd be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come. By the way, who does he condemn here? The stumblers? No. We will stumble, he says. But woe to those who make you stumble. Those are the ones that upset me. Woe to the ones whom the stumbling block comes. I used to, becoming stumbling blocks, I used to have a picture and I... I I can't, I, I know where it is. It's just a pain to get to them now because they're uh, well over 20 years old, but um, it's of actual millstones at, at, at Capernaum. You know, do you remember? I pointed the millstone, I, I pointed it out to Mike and Miriam. I said, you see that right there? That's an upper millstone, okay? The upper millstone was only half the size of the lower millstone. And the one that we were looking at was a good four feet around and weighed at least 700 pounds. And as you look at that millstone, when you're standing in Capernaum, all you have to do is look down a long sidewalk about a quarter of a mile and then a dock, and there's the Sea of Galilee right there. So he said, that millstone, that sea, my neck, stumbling block. See, the kingdom of this world is based on one thing. It's based on merit, or at least we think that it's based on merit. How many have ever heard that, that we believe we live in a meritocracy? In other words, good behavior merits reward, right? Hard work merits reward. 
getting what's deserved, getting what's worked for. In some cases, even violently taken. See, the problem with meritocracy in the kingdom of the world is who's defining meritorious? There are people defining meritorious that are willing to take whatever they want by force. It's fine for this world. It works here. Can we argue that? It works here very well, doesn't it? But we're not citizens of this kingdom, are we? Should we be part of helping it work very well in this world? Should we be part of being stumbling blocks to people to try to show them what the kingdom really looks like? If we allow for world ethics, kingdom of the world ethics to spill into the kingdom of heaven ethics that we're supposed to be living by, then we misunderstand. That's exactly what Paul is saying when he says, it's, it, it, when I became a man, I put away childish things. If you think about it, when a child is childish, that's what they're basing it on. They're basing it on meritocracy. They're basing it on what mine is mine and, and, and what's yours is mine when I want to take it. When a child is being selfish, they're being childish. I think that's what Paul means. Paul says, I, when I became a man, I put away childish things. In other words, my kingdom of the world ethics, I put away. To live like a child, to be childlike, that's a different story. You hold on to your childlikeness. Get away of our petulant way of getting our way. Put that away, he says. But even Christians somehow uh, uh, view becoming like Christ as viewed as meritorious. A religious life somehow merits the kingdom. And when people believe that, they make people stumble. We've been talking about this in, in prayer meeting. That's what I'm saying is in Galatians 3, that's what he's saying is, is that these people have come in and, and taught the Galatians a different gospel, that they need to do good things and works of the law in order to be meritorious. In other words, they can work their way into becoming children of Abraham. But he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You lock people out of the kingdom of heaven for you do not go in yourselves. And when others are going in, you stop them. The children who are entering the kingdom because they believe in him are then blocked by the self-righteous ones who are outside because they believe they don't merit the kingdom. You tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. You don't belong in here. They refuse to stumble on the rock. They throw stumbling blocks in front of the sinners, but they themselves will not stumble on the rock. What are we to say then? It says Gentiles, those people who you think don't merit the kingdom, religious believers, did not strive for righteousness, they've attained it. That is righteousness through what? Through faith. They thought that righteousness by faith was a pretty, that, that was pretty good sounding news. So what'd they do? They strove by faith. And Paul said, and when they did that, they attained righteousness. But Israel, the believers, the church, 
Those who did, not, who did strive for the righteousness that's based on the law did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based, as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, I'm laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He's saying if you're trying to, to uh, view your, your religious life as meritorious, that, that, that you deserve the kingdom because of your religious life, because of your obedience to the law, uh, because of any of these number of things, if you think that that's it, then, then you've stumbled already. You have stumbled on your way. You've stumbled as much as the rocks that you're throwing into the people who want to achieve it by faith. And that's what our scripture reading told us today, didn't it? Before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer subject to the disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's no longer a Jew or Greek. There's no longer slave or free. There's no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. See, faith is the one thing that puts us all on even ground, which is what we were meant to be. Why? Because there's only one other thing that puts us all on even ground, and that is our sin. And Jesus said, there's no way you can work your way out of your sin. There's no way you can make up for your sin. There is nobody that can do it. So what I want to do, he says, I want to keep the ground level. I want everybody to be able to be available to not have to, to, uh, to live the wages of sin, but to have my righteousness. So everybody then is allowed to have faith. That's why it's not based on the works of the law. Otherwise, then there would be people who would have an advantage. Religious people, self-righteous people, they would always have an advantage. Is that what he wanted? No. Faith becomes as available, in fact, faith becomes more available to everybody than our sin is. By the way, he comes to that conclusion, he says, because if you base it on the promise, then speaking to a Gentile church in Galatia, he says, then it doesn't matter anymore. These guys came in telling you that because they were, they were uh, of Israel, because they were Judean, because their relatives had a head start on all of this, that they were better than you, and they convinced you of that. And they convinced you that you needed to be as good as them in order to be favored by God. And he said, if you have faith, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile. No longer slave nor free. By the way, when you were a slave back then, could you be saved by Christ as an individual person? No, it was up to whether or not your owner was a righteous person. He could buy your way because he owned you. And he brings up women and men for the same reason. There's evidence in the New Testament that a woman 
who's married did not actually believe that they had an individual relationship with God. Women were property. So if your husband was a believer, then so are you. So what's Paul saying here? Faith is available to who? To everyone. So that no one can boast. So that no one can boast and lord it over somebody else. So that no one could try to tell somebody what pleases God and what doesn't please God. Paul told the Galatians, you know what? Your circumcision, your Sabbath keeping, your feast keeping, none of that pleases God. You're not, you're not favored in God's eyes because of that. You know why? Because you were already favored by God. I told you that. I told you that when I brought you Jesus. Paul said, I came and I presented Jesus. You had faith in him. The Holy Spirit fell on you. If you want any sign that God was favored with you, look, the Holy Spirit fell on you the same way that it fell on me. Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, free, it doesn't matter. He said, I've seen it work with everybody. And think about the time that he writes this to the Galatians. He's only been in the ministry for about three years and he's seen it work everywhere. He's not talking just theology, he's talking from experience. If you belong to Christ then, you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, not your circumcision, not your Sabbath keeping, not your feast keeping, heirs according to the promise. So do you mind me reminding of us, reminding us who we are? Just reminding us of the pediatric way of the kingdom. I'll leave you with this. Back to the book, Myth of a Christian Nation by Gregory Boyd. Here's Jesus, he says, possessing all power in heaven and earth and knowing he's about to be betrayed and die a horrible death. And what does he do? He assumes the position of a common household servant and washes the disciples' dirty, smelly feet. By the way, did he leave the one out who was going to betray him? He washed his feet too, didn't he? Because he knows very well that it's not just Judas who will betray him tomorrow morning. It's all of them. The very people he knows will betray and forsake him the following morning, he decides to wash their feet. That moment right there. This is how power is wielded in the kingdom of God. If you have all power in heaven and earth, Use it to wash the feet of someone you know will betray you. Love your enemy. In serving like this, Jesus declares to all who are willing to hear that he does not rule by the sword. He rules by the towel. Just something to leave with this, all of you. Fellow children of the kingdom of heaven. Good to see you again.